And before we pick up where we left off, and we do need to make some tracks because we've got a lot to cover. We didn't finish Lesson 7 last week, so we need to try to finish Lesson 7 and 8 this week. So we, gotta, we have to hustle. But uh, one of the things I want to remind you of that is coming up is next Sunday night and the Sunday night after that, the 17th and the 24th, are our annual servants' seminars. And we have those around this time every year to go over what we hope to accomplish by God's grace in the coming year as a church. So it's an important time for our church family, and this year especially important because uh, we've moved into this building. We want to use it in the most effective way possible, and so we'll talk about how to do that uh, at these seminars on Sunday the 17th and the 24th. It's the same seminar, just offered twice for your convenience, so that if you can't make it the one time, hopefully you can make it the other. We need you to tell us, though, which one of those two you're going to attend. And if you're a member of our church, you're strongly urged to come. If you're not a member of the church, you're uh, invited to come. Uh, and so any of you that would like to, please do. But we need to know which one you're coming to for food purposes. So please uh, give your name. Register at the Information Center today because they start next, next Sunday. And the folks that are ordering the food need to know that, uh, how much to get this week for the first one next Sunday evening. It's from 4.30 to 8 o'clock, and then we'll take a break around 6 o'clock for a dinner, so you don't have to have had dinner before you come. And we're also attempting to provide childcare. This is the first time we've been able to do that because it's the first time we've had these seminars in our own facility. And since we have the place to do that, we're trying to make that convenient for those who need it as well. But we need to know who requires that. So when you register, say which of the nights you're coming and also indicate if you need the, need the childcare. This coming Saturday from 12.30 to 2.30 is just a family outing bowling at Woodhaven Lanes. You need to pick up tickets today for that if you're planning to come. They are $6.50 per person. That's two games, and it's also the rental of, of the shoes. And uh, we'll start meet at Woodhaven Lanes at, at 12.30. All right, and at the top of page 19, it says Section 3, Reorientation. And that's because our series, Biblical Worldview 101, has divided uh, a biblical perspective on the world, world into three categories, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Orientation is about God and his creation and his instructions to us as his creatures. So we call that creation orientation. It's God and what he expects from us. And then disorientation is the fall, the entrance of sin into God's world and all the effects that that has had on the world God made. And so disorientation or the fall is who we are and what our problem is. And then last week we started the third and final category of a biblical view of the world, and that is, thankfully, God has not left us in the disorientation of sin, but rather he is actively reorienting his world to his original intention. And he is doing that through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so in our final lessons in this series, we're going to be looking at that section, reorientation, how God is doing that and how we fit into God's reorienting activity in, in his world. This is where you and I really fit in in terms of our purpose for being here. God has, left, has called us out of the world and to himself, and he has left us here for important eternal work to be involved in his labor of reorientation. So we're going to see over the next few weeks how we fit into that. 
But this reorientation begins, top of page 19, I say in the title of Lesson 7, by putting your mind to it. And if you were with us last week, you heard as we covered uh, the first couple of pages that putting your mind to it, by that I mean that our minds need to be restored. Our minds need to be uh, renewed in the language of Scripture. And so we are to carry out the will of God by being transformed through the renewing of our minds, Romans chapter 12 and verse, and verse 2. And we looked at some obstacles to that on page 20. There are religious reasons that we don't engage in this use of our minds for God's good purpose in His reorienting pur- uh, task. There are cultural reasons we saw as well. And if you weren't here, I encourage you to listen online. But then uh, on page 21, this is where we left off. We saw the decline of the Christian mind. Now we want to look at the rise of the Christian mind. How do we use the faculty that God has given us, the thinking ability, our intellect, in order to play an active part in renewing ourselves, but also being an instrument in the renewal of others and in God's world? How do we do that? The rise of the Christian mind. Well, one is we need to understand what spiritual discernment is. And for those of you who haven't heard a word I've said, and all you've been worried about is, is he going to spill that coffee? Because I always have people come up to me and go, you were just carrying that coffee around. You never took a drink of that coffee the whole time. And I was scared to death you were going to spill it. So I'm not spilling it. I'm taking a drink. Okay? All right. Now, can you, you all listen to me the rest of the time? Okay? Page 21. It's page 19. Hey, I got a question. Who's on first? We can do a routine, man. We can make a bunch of money, you know that? <laughs> All right, the rise of the Christian mind on whatever page you feel like looking at, okay? <laughs> so what is discernment? It can be defined at the top of that page as the divinely given ability to distinguish God's thoughts and ways from all others. Discernment has at its heart distinguishing, making a choice, evaluating. And so the ability to discern something, as we'll see from Hebrews 5, all of us are to have and all of us are to mature in, discernment means to make choices. It means to evaluate. And the standard of evaluation is God's standard. What does God think? And, of course, how do I know what God thinks? The only way I know what God thinks, the only way you know what God thinks, is by God telling us what He thinks. Thankfully, He's done that in giving us Scripture. So you see this in the Old Testament use of the Hebrew word that's translated discernment or discern. The New Testament word, same thing. And then I say, point three, that this ability to discern, though, is something that can be developed. It's something that can be learned. It's something that can be matured. And we see this in Hebrews 5. The writer of Hebrews says, Strong meat belongs to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised, to discern both good and evil. So by reason of use, by engaging in it, by doing it, they've exercised this ability and, and grown in this ability to discern good versus, versus evil. 
So in order for this to happen, in order for you and I to do this effectively, living in a fallen world, looking at life through God's lens, thinking God's thoughts after him, applying what God's standard is to everything with which we are confronted, in order for us to do it, we need the information of God's standard, and then we need the skill to apply it. We need the knowledge and we need the skill. Or, to put it in biblical language, we need knowledge and wisdom. And, and that skill, that wisdom, includes what I say under point B. How can we develop spiritual discernment? One is to think antithetically. Think antithetically. What does that mean? Well, uh, antithesis is an, is an opposite. And so to think antithetically, we need to do what Scripture does. Think in terms of right-wrong. Think in terms of light-darkness. Think in terms of believer-unbeliever. Think in terms of heaven-hell. Temporal versus eternal. I mean, you you could go on with these contrasts over and over that are given in in Scripture. And and we need to think in those, those ways. Wisdom literature in Scripture, book of Proverbs, Jesus' teachings and the Sermon on the Mount, certainly, are like this. They are wise and foolish, right? That's the way Jesus talks. These are the stark contrasts between God's ways and man's ways. And we need to develop, then, the the sense of being able to see the antithesis between God's ideal, what God says, and the way things are. So that's what we mean by thinking antithetically. Now, sometimes we talk about gray, gray areas. You know, we, I just said light and darkness, believer, unbeliever, heaven, hell, God, Satan, you know, all of that. Those contrasts, those strong antithetical contrasts in Scripture. But what about gray areas? And, and I would just say this to you, in my simplistic way of thinking about things, this is the way I see it. There is no such thing as gray until you have black and white. Don't worry about gray until you have nailed black and white. Okay? Get the contrast. Get them well. And then you will have to indeed synthesize because there are there are circumstances that we encounter where it's not so easy to know to know what to do. But those so called gray areas can only be determined to be gray areas if you have first, right? You don't have gray until you first got black and white. And that's why Scripture does this. That's why Scripture speaks in those stark antithetical terms, black and white, good and evil, light and darkness, in order for us to see those categories and then use the faculty of wisdom and discernment that God gives us in order to now navigate our way in the, in the synthesis of those, the gray areas that occur in life. So think antithetically. Train yourself to do that. Secondly, consider the reasoning behind your conclusions. You know, question yourself. Ask yourself, why have I concluded this? Why do I take this position? And is my reason based upon a thorough understanding of God's thoughts, God's Scripture? So think about the reasoning behind your conclusion, not just the conclusion. To put this another way, stop simply having your own opinion. 
Now, we all, we all are going to form opinions. We're all going to draw conclusions. We all are called to do that. But it's not enough to just say, but that's just my opinion. You know, you're, you're entitled to your opinion, but your opinion is only any good as it is based upon a proper foundation. Same thing with mine. And so analyze the basis, the reasoning behind the opinion, the conclusion that you have arrived at. It's not enough to simply say, you know, that's, that's my opinion. And this is just a pet peeve. But I, I try to almost, I try to never start a, uh, a sentence with, in my opinion. One, because I want it to be more than just Ken's thing. I want it to be based on something more solid. But also, you know, the truth is, if I'm saying it, it's obviously my opinion. Right? So, you know, we always say, well, in my personal opinion. Well, of course, you're the one saying it. So we could save some oxygen and just move on. <laughs> just blurt it out. If you've thought about it and you want to say it, apparently you can defend it, so go for it. Okay? All right. I feel better. Now I'll go to number three. Logical fallacies. You know, as we develop the skill of discernment, exercising wisdom, with the, with the knowledge, the information that we have, we're only going to be able to draw proper conclusions and discern properly if we effectively avoid making logical mistakes. I have a bunch of them here. I will give a few examples of the first, maybe half of these, and then just tell you what the others are, okay? But uh, misuse of analogy. So it is saying things like, you're involved in a, a controversy of some type. Or you're thinking, you're reading something in the paper about some politician. I'll, I'll use one, Bob Menendez. Uh, he's a uh, Democratic senator from New Jersey. He's been in hot water over the last couple of months uh, because uh, an informant told the FBI that he was soliciting uh, pro not just prostitutes, underage prostitutes in somewhere, the Dominican Republic or somewhere. Uh, so this is swirling around. I mean, this guy's having to hide from the media and the whole bit. Well, it, you know, it turns out, I think this past week, that the tipster says, I lied. Somebody came and, you know, told me to say this. Uh, who that somebody is, I don't think we know yet. But So here's this guy having all this swirling around. And maybe you thought this or said this, but numerous people said, with all the stuff going around and all the circumstantial stuff with Menendez happening, Say something like, where there's smoke, what? Okay, so there's all the smoke going on with regard to Menendez. Now, by the way, I'm no Menendez, believe me, I'm no Menendez <laughs> uh, lackey. But people need to be treated fairly. I don't care if they got a D or an R or an I next to their name. And, you know, so there's all this stuff swirling around. It's all in the news. And it turns out, you know, the informant lied. Well... Where there's smoke, there's fire is used as an analogy. You know, where there's, where, there's, where there's smoke, there had to have been a cause for that smoke. Therefore, there must be a fire somewhere that is resulting in all of this. Well, yeah, but the fire could be any number of things, right? That's causing all this smoke. The fire could be he's guilty. That's one. Or it could be somebody lied. That's another fire that created all the smoke. 
So it's not good enough for us to simply throw out there where there's smoke, there's fire, just because you see something happening. To connect that smoke to a particular fire means you better have evidence. That's misuse of analogy. Faulty dilemma. Um, And this is when you, you take two opposites, false choice. You tell somebody these are your two choices and your only two choices. Sometimes called the excluded middle. There's no middle choice. Okay, faulty dilemma. So what does this look like? Well, I read a commentator some years ago who was in Galatians 5 talking about uh, the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer and the commands there to keep in step with the Spirit in contrast to uh, the, the uh, work of the law. And so in Galatians, if you've read that, you've got the work of the Spirit, you've got the work of the law, and the work of the law uh, simply reveals our sin. And so that contrast is the, the dilemma that this commentator uh, posed. And then this is what he said. He said, why would you want to live by a list of rules when you can live according to the Spirit? Well, now think about the false choice here. There's living according to the Spirit and there's having rules. Where does the Bible condemn having rules? Hint, it doesn't. (laughs) Okay? Isn't it possible that there's a middle choice here? That the Spirit is pleased to use the standards that a believer has established in his or her life in order to move them from where they are to where they need to go, for them to avoid things that are not helpful for them. You know, Paul says, all things are lawful for me, mocking the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient, he says. And then he repeats what they say. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So the idea that because I am saved, because I have the Spirit, then I have a libertarian approach to life that doesn't require standards or any kind of rules in my life is not something the Scriptures teach at all. It's a false dilemma, false cause. There there are Latin terms for all these, by the way. Um, This is the uh, post, sometimes pronounced hoc, post-hoc fallacy. So post-hoc, ergo, proctor, hoc. After this, therefore, because of this. That's what it means. It's the false um, cause. And what it's saying is because something happened after something else, then it was... a it was caused by that thing. I'll give an example. You know, Roman Catholics used to say that the Protestant Reformation started in the 16th century because Martin Luther was a priest and he wanted to get married. And how do we know that's why the Protestant Reformation started? Because he got married. So the Reformation happened. Luther got married Therefore, that was the cause of the Reformation. This happened after the Reformation. He got married. Therefore, that's the cause of why the Reformation occurred. Well, that's false. Maybe there's another cause, like justification by faith alone or something like that. Grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. False cause. False conclusion. You know, in, in, in logic, you know, you have major 
a major premise and a minor premise, and then you conclude something off of that. So uh, uh, smoking causes cancer. That's your major premise. Minor premise, John smokes. Conclusion, John has cancer. Well, see, that's a false conclusion, right? And you can do this in, you can do this in lots, of, lots of ways. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses do it. Um, there's only one God. That's your major premise. Minor premise, the Father is God. Conclusion, what do they conclude? Jesus can't be God. Then. But it's a, it's a false conclusion because, uh, yes, the Father is God, but uh, scripturally, there are three who, who are God as well. So there's a problem with the, the minor premise. Begging the question. And what that is, is simply stating what you have yet to prove. Simply declaring what you have not proven by an argument. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I was debating with a Roman Catholic. This is not pick on Roman Catholics today. Just got two Roman Catholic examples. I was debating with a uh, Roman Catholic apologist uh, in California by way of phone. We had had several phone conversations and some email exchanges about Protestantism and Roman, Roman Catholicism. Uh, Rosalind Moss, if any of you watch, ever watch EWTN, the Eternal Word Television Network, she's, she's actually on there. And she's actually quite, quite effective. She's quite good. She's all wrong, but she's, she's quite good. So I get into this thing with her, and one of the things that she says over and over and over again, a lot of these Roman Catholic apologists say is, you know, you Protestants are just hope, hopelessly divided. They say there are a hundred and, no, there are 23,000, 23,000 Protestant denominations and sects. 23,000, they say. And then if you say, where did you get that number? Nobody's ever been able to give where that number came from. One. Okay, but we know there's plenty of division. There's churches, lots of denominations, lots of differences over sometimes minor stuff. That's all true. Here's the dirty secret, though. Within the umbrella of Roman Catholicism, they're all divided, too. You know, you've got, you've got people who don't believe Vatican II was a valid council of the church. They don't recognize the pronouncements of Vatican II at all. So I went through a litany of these to her. After she had told me, see, you guys are clearly wrong because you're all divided, and we're unified. And so I point out to her how you guys are all divided. And then she says, well, you know, Ken, that simply proves that the Catholic Church is God's church because it's being persecuted in that way. And I said, now, let me make sure I get this straight. Because you're unified, it proves you're the one true church. And because you're divided, it proves you're the one true church. So there's no way to prove to you you're not the one true church, right? Because no matter what you say, so she's simply asserting what she has yet to prove, begging the question. She asserts it, but doesn't prove it. All right, more quickly, argument to the man, fancy Latin term is ad hominem, an ad hominem attack. Why do I give you sometimes the Latin term? You guys know why I've said this before. You know, if you're ever losing an argument, start talking in Latin. <laughs> People will go, whoa, that dude is smart. <laughs> Don't mess with him. So say, ah, oh, I see you've resorted to an ad hominem attack. And pray they don't ask you what it is. <laughs> but the cool thing is you can just make something up because they won't know what it is either, all right? Ad hominem, to the man, against the person. So it's when you're having a debate 
And instead of debating the merits of the position, you attack the person. That's what ad hominem is, argument to the man. And you see this kind of thing happen, oh my goodness, in politics all the time, right? We don't deal with the merits of the position, we attack the person. And if we're going to train our minds, we need to stop doing that. Now, you know, I'm so me, um, I have gotten into the habit, sometimes bad habit, I admit this, really. It's just hard. I just I attack the issue and attack the issue and keep attacking the issue. And when you're attacking the issue, I've learned by hard experience that people think you're attacking them. So for me, if I don't call you names, if I don't say you're an idiot, if I don't say any of that, and, and I don't think that, I'm just coming after the issue, I think we're all good because we're just discussing the issue. So if I do that to you, smack me. And you've got my permission to say, you're an idiot, okay? Stop doing that because there's a difference between attacking the issue and attacking the person. But when we're really going after it intensely on the issue, sometimes those get mixed up, don't they? But we never have the right to attack the person. Always deal with the issue. Slippery slope, you know, it it's, it's, simply says if you do this, it's going to lead to that. So you start here, you're going to wind up on a slippery slope, inevitably it's going to lead to that. So the slippery slope idea, the key word is inevitable. You start here, inevitably you're going to lead there. Uh, you have to show that. You have to prove that that's inevitable. It, it may well not be inevitable. Straw man, you know, you make an argument that says that, uh, uh, that nobody is actually making. And then you tie that to the person you're debating with. So, uh, you know, you, you, you say that, um, if you say, you know, we've got people who want to spend uh, $10 trillion over the next year on whatever it is, government programs. I'm just making up a number, but that's a big number. And then you say, look at all the money that's being spent on Obamacare. What you've done is tied this straw man to somebody who isn't making that argument. They're not talking about spending $10 trillion. Or, you know, we've got people who are quick to invoke war as a solution to political problems. And so you make that point that there are people who want to go to war quickly. They have a hair-trigger mentality. And then you say, George W. Bush sent us into Iraq. Well, he's, you know, again, he's not making the case that we should go to war over everything that, that happens, whether you agree with the Iraq war or not. So straw man is setting up an argument nobody's making and then applying it to the person that you're, you're debating. Popular opinion, that's simply saying, you know, everybody believes this. You know, most people believe this. Therefore, you're in the minority. Therefore, you must be wrong. Well, guess what? From a Christian standpoint, you're often in the minority. In fact, popular opinion probably means if you're the opposite of popular opinion, you're probably right from a biblical standpoint. Now, obviously not always, but that won't work. Special pleading, yes, this applies in most cases, but in my case, there's, a, there's an exception. That's what that is. And then guilt by association. You believe this, there are other people, bad people who believe something like that. For instance, gun control. So whatever your position on gun control, and believe me, I know the position of 
gun control on the part of a number of our folks here. I walk carefully through the hallways. I don't mess with people packing heat. I just, okay? I just preach my sermon, go to my office, and get out of Dodge as fast as I can, okay? But anyway, but you know, it's gun control. And guilt by association says, you know, the, you know what the Nazis did? The Nazis are always, Nazis can be invoked for everything, right? You know, the Nazis did this, and then you tie what the Nazis did to, you know, somebody who wants to control guns more than, than you think they should or something like that. So guilt by association. All right. Page uh, 20, lesson 8. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. And here's why I say it that way. Because as explained at the top of that page, you know, if you've been with us for these several weeks now, you see that truth is a minority position. That's why it'll make you odd. So if you are going to stand on truth, according to a biblical worldview, you're going to be in the minority. And that's because of the disorientation that is part of the biblical worldview. Most people, all people come into the world, and most people remain in the world apart from truth. And so if you adhere to truth, then it will make you different. And so this lesson then is about how to navigate that difference, how to see the difference, how to discern, as we saw in the previous lesson, God's thoughts as opposed to to all others. And so I say at the top of the page, we've seen the world of the Creator has been distorted by the fall. The world God made is now used and abused for for ends that are contrary to His design. This misuse of God's world is called worldliness. The world in Scripture, the Greek word is cosmos, which refers to the arrangement that reflects the fallen values of sinful creatures. As such, the world takes what is good and perverts it to promote evil values. Worldliness, then, is not what the world does, not primarily what the world does, but what it believes and values. You know, if you guys get nothing out of these many weeks together, if you'll just get that, that's what worldliness is. It's loving and valuing things that are contrary to God's character and God's design. Worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture, at a particular place, in a particular time, in particular ways. But it expresses these fallen values. We'll see what some of those are. Now with that, you've got this Bible word, sanctification. And it means to be set apart. And that too is not first in what we do, but in who we are, what one is. As Christians, we've come to believe and value that which is diametrically opposed to the world. Therefore, our difference is not always found in external things like dress, language, though sometimes it is, but rather in the God-centered agenda to which we have given our allegiance. Our commitment to God is expressed in all we do and may sometimes be imitated by the world. But although the world may sometimes look and act like us, it never does so for the same reasons. It simply lives off the borrowed capital of the biblical worldview. That's a mouthful, but here's what we're saying is that, and I think I gave this example a couple weeks ago, but people in the world, people who are not Christians, who do not give their allegiance to Jesus, do good things, like get married. Well, that's a good thing, right? 
Now, they never do it for the right reasons. If you're not a believer, by definition, you're not doing it for the glory of God. And so even doing good things for an unbeliever is still sin. Yikes. <laughs> so to the unbeliever who thinks I'm going to get to heaven by doing enough good stuff to cancel out my bad stuff, all your stuff is bad. Even your good stuff's bad. Because you're not doing it for the right reasons. So good luck with that. Okay? You need the gospel. That's why you need Christ. So the, 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 even the good the unbeliever does, but sometimes that good, externally at least, mimics what God has given us in his orientation to do. Things like a good one is marriage. So we're happy when unbelievers get married because that helps preserve society and all of, and all of that. But notice they are living off the borrowed capital of the biblical worldview. And even that, worldlings can't leave well enough alone, can they? Because what do we now have to do with marriage? We have to distort that. So marriage is now not between a man and a woman. Marriage is just between two committed people and all of that. You know, I'm old enough now to remember when this whole marriage, well, it wasn't even marriage, it was just homosexuality debate, got going in our culture. And it started very small and it has gained momentum unbelievably, at an unbelievable rate. But it started small, and I remember the arguments that were made early on. Look, what, what I do in my bedroom is nobody's business. And when I was in college, we used to argue about this stuff. So here and I would say, homosexuality is a sin, and the, the government has a legitimate state interest in regulating and, and all of that. Which means the, the state does not have to recognize marriages of homosexual couples. And then they would say, what I do in my bedroom is no one's business. I say, well, then why are you talking about it? That's my response. You brought it up. You're the one telling the whole world what you do in your bedroom. Right? See, there was a reason they brought it up. And then they turn around and say, hey, wait a minute. It's none of your business what I do in my bedroom. I go, cool. You know, then basically just keep it away from me and we'll be good. If I don't know what you're doing in your bedroom, then we're good. Right? But that was never the agenda, was it? To simply say, what, I'm gonna, what I want the right to do what I want in private. But rather, it was to eventually make it acceptable and come public. And that's now, that's now where we are. So the world can mimic what Christians do, never for the right reasons, and in so doing, they are living off the borrowed capital, I say stolen capital, really, of the biblical worldview. Therefore, last sentence in that paragraph, second paragraph, in areas where the believer and unbeliever are the same, it's the unbeliever using the biblical worldview. It should never involve the believer borrowing from the world. Now, you all see that? Dear Christian friend, as God restores, his, reorients his world, as he reorients you to the way you're su supposed to be, the way I was intended to be, Part of that means I am not borrowing from the world. If the world is fallen values, sinful values, then clearly I can't be borrowing from the world. So when the world looks like what we do, it should be the world borrowing from us, not the other way, not the other way around. What distinguishes the way of life then is not the Christian way of life, is not something external first, but something spiritual. And you see this in this in this very eloquent letter to Diognetus, 
from the second century. And this is a letter written by a Christian to someone named Diognetus defending the Christian way of life. Now, I'm not going to take time to read it, but I encourage you to read it. If you'll turn to the next page, let's try to, in our remaining minutes, do an exercise with regard to this. If worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture, and if we are not to borrow from the world, then we need to know what the world's fallen values are. What are they today, 2013 America? So if you're going to be reoriented, if I'm going to be renewed in my thinking, then I need to think about what worldliness looks like at this place at this time. What are the values of the world expressed in our culture? In the middle of that page, it says cultural values. And I, and I started out with one there. Wealth or materialism or whatever synonym you want to use. Would you all agree that that's a, a value of our culture? And it's a fallen value of our culture. And, and remember, we said that you know, what the world does, it takes the good stuff that God made and distorts it to other ends. So is there anything inherently wrong with money? Of course not. Is there anything inherently wrong with matter? Of course not. God made the matter. God made material things. The question is, how do we distort them? How do we use them? To what extent do we value them? And so put whatever synonym you want there, wealth, materialism, and what does the Bible say about that? And I've got some verses for you there. And I'm suggesting to you and each of us that this is the kind of exercise we each need to go through. Analyze your culture and say, what does it value? And what does the Bible say about what it values? And what's the antidote, the answer to that? So let's fill in a few more. I filled in one just to get you started. In our remaining moments, give me a value of our culture. Anybody know of anything that our culture values? Okay, prominence, prestige, stature. Okay, good. Yeah, good. So, uh, and, and or you could you could you could say pride of position, right? And indeed, what does First John two fifteen say? The pride of life is one of the one of the expressions of worldliness. So, as you do a biblical analysis, First John two fifteen would be one of the verses you would have for that. Very good. What about sensuality? Is that a value of our culture? Yikes, are you kidding? You know, what does the Bible have to say about, about this? First Timothy chapter, chapter 6 talks about the, the body and the way we use the body. It actually says bodily exercise profits little. Now, some of us need to profit some more. But if you were here last week, it means you're spiritual. Remember that? Okay. According to Kenneth Hagin. So, but we are so focused on our bodies in our culture because we are so sensually oriented. And then that affects all kinds of things. It affects the way we dress. You know, I got two daughters. And um, I have to, my wife and I, have to teach our daughters about what God's values are versus what the world's values are in terms of sensuality. Um, 
What about, uh, what about just selfishness? You know, me first, self. <laughs> that's that's a, a worldly value, right? Me first, it's about me. And that shows up, that, that self first shows up in a number of ways. You know, it shows up in the world's anger. You know, there's this angry edge to the world because things have not gone for me the way they ought to go. Well, what does the Bible have to say about, about that? You know, the Bible speaks of, of contentment, doesn't it? The Bible speaks of joy, Philippians chapter 4. Now, what does that look like? Now, I'm going to say something that's going to get everybody mad, but I'm going to run out the door after I say this. But see, these are values that are expressed in culture. So they show up in particular ways in culture. So look at your favorite rock band. I say rock. shows how old I am. What, I mean, what am I looking at? What are we looking at? Hip-hop's 20 years old. What am I... Somebody help me. But look at your favorite, whatever it is, doing music, okay? And look at the way they present themselves. Will sensuality be part of that? You know, the halftime show for the Super Bowl? Um, this, is, this is fallen values expressed in culture, sensuality. What about the angry edge? Just look at the pictures. It looks like I want to be in a gang because I want to kill you. Because I'm ticked. All right, that's the world. Now compare those pictures to your favorite Christian rock band, hip-hop band, I don't know. And see how different those look. Those dudes don't look joyful to me. They look ticked. But they're Christians. But they really look angry. Why? I'm asking you. Do you remember me saying that there are these different ways to address our approach to the world? Jesus says be in the world but not of the world. But one of the ways that we can do it is we cannot be in the world and still be of the world. Do you remember that? And I said Christians kind of have their own parallel universe but we still adopt the values of the world. We just call it Christian. And, and I'm afraid, I'm afraid that that's much of what we do with our Christian culture, especially our Christian entertainment culture. Now, you're going to have to deal with that. We don't have rules at our church about that stuff. I just make people mad every so often from a pastoral standpoint to have you think about that that much of what passes for Christian is borrowing the values of the world. And if we're going to have our minds renewed, if we're going to be reoriented, then we have to think about the values that are being expressed and don't copy them. Remember, the Christian never copies the world. All right, I'm on a roll now but i got to shut up. But let me just say this. You guys hear me say, and we joke, and I say often in lessons and in sermons, I'll say in the words of those great theologians, and then I'll mention some rock band or something. 
But I, I am careful not to quote people who are when, them saying things that are opposed to a biblical worldview. Um, Bob Seeger, you know, I've quoted him in the words of that great theologian Bob Seeger, beautiful loser, you know. But um, Bob Seeger, I, I've quoted him negatively. When years ago he had a song called We've Got Tonight, Who Needs Tomorrow? Look at the stars so far away. That song, he's trying to convince a, a, a girl to sleep with him. We've got tonight, don't worry about the consequences. Now, I'll quote that negatively, but I won't quote that kind of thing in fun because that is worldly value. That is straight up sin. And Christians don't celebrate that stuff. We don't celebrate adultery. We don't celebrate fornication. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, we should not even speak of the things that the disobedient do in secret. At all. We don't glorify it. We don't promote it. We don't buy it. We don't patronize it. Otherwise, we become like the world. Now, dear friends, that means you and I have to think about it. You know, the things we celebrate, and the things we watch, and the things we listen to, and the stuff we go to. And part of God's reorienting activity is the renewing of our minds and the way we think. And in turn, how we distinguish God's thoughts and His ways from all others, and then we make decisions about what it is we're going to follow. Okay? All right. We'll finish this lesson next week, Lord willing. Let's pray. Let's pray for me, my safety. You know, if any of the We Got Tonight people are out there, are also packing heat. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us in giving us light in the midst of darkness. Your word is our light and our lamp. It tells us what you intend. It gives us direction for our lives. It gives us your standard, and it is opposed to the world. The Lord Jesus said when he walked the earth that his followers would be sanctified, set apart by the truth, your word is truth. So if we follow your way, we will be out of step. We will be odd. We will be different. We march to the beat of a different drummer. But Lord, help us to see that as the best way, even though it's the minority way. Because it's your way. Because it's what you originally intended. Because it is what you are reorienting us in and toward. Lord, for us to be effective in glorifying you with our lives then we must increasingly be set apart from the values of the world. And in order for us to be effective in seeing others come to you, we must be light in darkness. We cannot appropriate the darkness and expect anyone to be drawn to the light. You have told us we are the light of the world, that we are the salt of the earth. Well, Lord, help us to value, help us to love the light. Help us to indeed be that preservative
in Trenton and beyond. And help us to begin that by analyzing where we're living and where we're serving and what's going on and how it is different from your thoughts and your ways. And help us, Lord, to see how much better your thoughts and ways are. May we be a people who are holy because you are holy. And if we are holy, by definition, we will not be worldly. We will not adopt the world's values in the way we talk, in the way we think, in the way we act, in the things we pursue. We will have freed ourselves to do what's more important, most important, pursuing your mission in your world, to expand your fame, to see your gospel go to and in those who now curse you so that they now then become mouths that praise you. Lord, that's what we want to see happen, and we want to be used as your instruments, but we need to be holy vessels, and we need your aid every moment of every day to be meet for the master's use, to be effective for the master's use. Go with us this week as we ponder and apply these things. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.